You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Uh, my guest today on the pod is Ben Alderson Day, who is an associate professor in psychology and a fellow of the Wolfson Research Institute for Health and Well-Being at Durham University, a specialist in atypical cognition and mental health. His work spans cognitive neuroscience, psychiatry, philosophy, and child development, and he's got a new book. It's terrific. It's called Presence, The Strange Science and True Stories of the Unseen Other. You're going to love this podcast. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Ben Alderson Day, welcome to the show. Hi. When I was pitched your book to cover on the podcast, I was immediately intrigued by the title, uh, in part because one of Second City's offerings to our corporate clients is storytelling and presence. And I've been joking lately that when people hire us to teach storytelling, they all have a different idea of what it is that they want. Some people want sales, some people want, they think it's about charisma, whatever. But I hadn't really considered that it's very much the same thing with presence. And you even write in the preface, quote, this book is an attempt to understand what presence is, end quote. I don't think I knew that maybe we don't know what that is. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious when you wrote that, was that coming from a place of like, yeah, no, we don't know. Or is that a thing you sort of discovered as you were writing the book? I think I would say it's something that came across my radar because it's a word that people land on because they struggle for other words to describe this particular phenomenon that the book centers on, which is the feeling that someone is present kind of with you by your side, even when actually you're alone and you've got no sensory evidence, no reason to think that somebody's there other than this gut feeling. And so people come back to this word presence. Um, and when I say people, I'm meaning people in lots of different contexts. I was, right. I was originally working in, uh, working with people with psychosis, people who were regularly hearing voices who would eventually, after a while talking to them, they would talk about being able to feel the voices being there without them speaking, without actually any sound involved, them just being present. And that's almost where the conversation would stop. They'd get to that notion of presence and they wouldn't go further. And so that was really, it was presence with a kind of question mark for me. It was like, well, what, what does that really mean? What do we mean when we think someone is just there? You know, what, in a way, are the basic conditions under which we detect this other, this non-self thing in our experience. Um, and the book is really me wrestling with that ever so slightly ambitious <laughs> challenge um, through different ways and by talking to different people and hearing different stories. Um, and the heart of that is, is storytelling, really. It's trying to understand people's own experiences in the round, 
not just assessing them on a particular questionnaire or a standard research interview or something like that, but really trying to get under what do they mean when they say presence. And you also write in the book that the language of the book is a compromise. And I'm curious, what, what was the, what was the compromise for you? Well, I, I think coming from um, a particular research area, which is full of um, uh, clashing views and priorities and to some degree politics, um, language is very powerful, essentially, in mental health, in discussions around psychiatry and psychology, um, in the way that it defines, you know, who gets to make a decision like a diagnosis and who gets treated or who gets a particular medication. And so you can't work in this area without being aware of the power of language and how definitive it can be. Uh, and so a lot of the people that I uh, worked with as part of this project at Durham University in the UK, a project called Hearing the Voice, where people who perhaps had been through the standard mental health system or psychiatric system and disagreed with some of the language and terms that have been applied to them. So, for example, they would disagree with the concept of schizophrenia. They wouldn't like that language applied to them. Uh, they might disagree with diagnosis in general. Um, and even a word like hallucination, which for some people might seem quite innocuous, if you were a person who'd been hearing voices for half of their life, and sometimes those experiences were distressing, but sometimes they weren't, or they were experiences that you'd had to work out yourself how to how to manage, and they had essentially became a part of your life. A term like hallucination could actually be very problematic, because essentially mm -hmm. it's saying, sure, you're having an experience, but fundamentally you're mistaken, because ultimately the definition of hallucination is having a sensory experience without the corresponding external stimulus outside there in the world so built into that concept is the idea that somebody's making a mistake that somebody's kind of wrong mm -hmm. or, or potentially deficient so even words like that they're not neutral terms and it's incumbent on me in writing this book and for i mean that's that's only kind of one group of people that i spoke to for the book but um i think particularly when you're trying to span different contexts different debates you just got to be really aware about the way in which you use language in those different contexts um, because you might be doing damage to somebody's experience or kind of undermining or or uh, um, uh, not respecting what they're trying to say to you. Sure, because, I mean, you have hallucinations, but you also sort of in the Native American tradition here in the States, you've got um, vision quests, you know, sure. and, 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 and also we, whether people are experimenting and, and you know, and drug use, and, and especially is now starting to be used in medicine and in terms of uh, mushrooms and different things like that. So it's much more, it's much more complex. And I, and mm. it's interesting. because I want to actually talk about that first story about you, you say, quote, Alex, here's four voices that other people cannot hear. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is kind of the first chapter for story. Can you talk a bit about this individual and what they were sort of going through and, and the lens with which you are examining their life? Of course, of course. So um, Alex isn't the real name of this yeah. particular young man that I was talking to for a research study. Um, and one or two details have changed there because obviously we need to retain kind of anonymity um, for this particular person. But um, in brief, um, this is a young lad who lives in the northeast of uh, England um, in the UK who was taking part in a study where we wanted to talk to people early on in their journey of using mental health services for managing distressing voices or hallucinations. We wanted to know, like, what are their experiences like now? And then how is that going to change over the next few years through them using services or kind of almost like naturally through what might happen with their voices? Um, and um, you can go in lots of different directions with that when you're talking to people just about the nature of the experience, what they're experiencing. Um, but one of the things that came out pretty late on in me talking to Alex, and I and I say, explain this in, in, the, in the book, this is um, my third main meeting with Alex, which is actually two years after I'd met him the first time. Wow. We kind of land on this idea of voices being present, or them kind of somehow just being there all the time. And what was striking for me was that uh, Alex is a natural talker. The first time I met him, I learned all, ab all about his different voices, these particular voices he hears regularly. And by the way, on average, when you survey people who regularly hear voices, they'd usually hear between three and four. I think a lot of the time the stereotype is, oh, there's this one particular voice that's telling people to do bad things. And that's not really the case. It's much more like a bit of a gang. And it's yeah. the gang that kind of knows your worst fears, can prey upon your kind of all your insecurities. They're targeted at you. They're not targeted at other people. But anyway, that, um, that's an aside. But very often they have this feeling of presence, like they're there all the time, that they're just on your shoulder. And 
it was notable that Alex could only talk about that towards the end of when I was talking to him. He we covered loads of stuff around the nature of his voices and his hallucinatory experiences. He even talked about how sometimes he feels that he's in the middle of a kind of Truman show style scenario mm-hmm. where there's something, somebody up there in the world is controlling everything around him. But the thing, and in his own words, the thing he thought made him sound the most mad was the idea of sensing these things, even without hearing them. And he said, mm-hmm. I don't even try and explain it. Usually I don't try and bring it up in therapy. It's just so weird. And he didn't have, you know, beyond the things he was telling me, it was almost like there wasn't a language for it. There wasn't a, didn't fit in any box, even the number of boxes that we have for understanding psychosis. You know, this was somehow beyond the pale. Um, and, uh, and that to me was, Alex wasn't the first person that I'd heard that from, but he was definitely a, an important person for me and really pushing me to think that this is something we've really got to try and understand. Um, because it's almost like this kind of hidden, thing behind everything else um, and indeed from other people who've had these experiences from what we might term lived experience researchers people who are working doing psychosis research themselves but have had a range of unusual experiences there are various grassroots movements saying we have to understand more about experiences like presence they, they're just not the sort of thing we usually assess when we're, we've got these different checklists for workout should people receive this diagnosis or that diagnosis um, instead, it's it's the really hard, knotty stuff about the kind of the most unusual and strange bits of psychosis. Well, and and I, I as I was reading your book, and everyone's like, "What are you reading now?" And I would tell them about the book, and I would ask them in terms of their. I have yet to find someone who didn't understand or experience for themselves this idea of a present other who was not physically there. Mm. Period. End of story. And I don't see that. I don't I recall from the book you finding someone who was like, nope. No. Well, I mean, um, it's strange. Sometimes you strike up conversations with people and they, it, it, I guess it's a concept that can be easy to misunderstand. So sometimes yes. people think that you're just talking about ghosts. And right. sometimes people think you're talking about that feeling of being watched or almost like having eyes in the back of your head. Um, and genuinely, people might mean different things by presence. I think this is one of the key challenges of the book. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I do feel that most people that you talk to, like you say, when you describe it, they go, oh, yeah, that's happened to me. Yeah. And it might have been a different situation each time that you talk to people that, that it's happened to them. But everybody kind of knows that feeling, a quite uncanny feeling, like the hairs go up on the back of your neck. You might feel something strange in your stomach. The temperature of the room might feel different. And again, I'm saying all these things and people think, start to think, well, that's like the start of a ghost story. Um, but um, there are actually very specific situations in which this happens again and again. Things like sleep paralysis is very common uh, mm-hmm. in sleep paralysis where people wake up, their, their minds are awake, but they can't move their body. About half, half of uh, people who experience sleep paralysis will have this sense of a really malevolent presence in the room. Yeah, and you've yeah. you've had it too. Is that right? Oh yeah, no. The the, the and uh, did a quick uh, four or five people in the hallway here. Uh, three um, uh, also reported the same thing. Yeah, which is, which is that that's it. Is it, it's like there's this. So I have the paralysis, but the paralysis is meaningless without the malevolence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But exactly. it, uh, it's and and again the the book sort of this is where the book goes right, which is there there it's it's rich territory because i think as human beings for a variety of reasons whether it's education culture and certainly this is a very true thing in america the the rugged individualism this idea that we're at it alone and then in reality we are never alone Mm -hmm. ever and and this uh, this idea like i don't even exist without other people you know in, in that 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 at least my pov on this which is also, um, I think, built on on our, the work we do here, which is ensemble based, which is about all our phraseology is, you know, um, uh, all of us are better than one of us. You're 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 here to save your scene partner. They are here to save you. It's literally that before we any, every single show at Second City, and this is since 1959, the cast pats each other on the back and says, I've got your back. Right. And, and it, is, it is not it, and it is literal and it is figurative in the best possible way. So I, I think that in, in your stories, because you 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 go to Shackleton, you go to friends who are doing in, in, in uh, sports and, and that sort of thing, that it exists there, but but exists in in even the most ordinary, you know, some guy walking across Italy, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's a uh, there. There are certain versions of this story which make out like it's all about extraordinary people are uh, doing extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, the legends that loom the largest are, as you might expect, the most extraordinary. And Shackleton is a great example of that. That. There's a term it's called the third man factor. John Geiger wrote a great book about that in the late 2010s that's known among expeditioners, mountaineers, of this feeling in very, very extreme situations, often where, where life might be in the balance, that suddenly people feel like they're joined by a companion, joined by a presence. We call it the third man factor because T.S. Eliot, in his poem The Wasteland in 1922, remembered hearing about Shackleton's own, own experiences of presence when he was crossing South Georgia Island at the end of the endurance expedition in 1916 now there were actually three men and they were experiencing a fourth phantom but mm-hmm. uh, the way that history goes that turns into the third and now uh, people know it as the third mm-hmm. um but uh that kind of that origin story coming from shackleton uh, really looms over so many other instances that people think well that's the way it works like presence is about survival or it's a defense mechanism it's kind of what you need in this particular situation um, and sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. Uh, you know, there's, you know, you could argue we wouldn't, we don't hear about many evil presences up mountains, um, because maybe those folk didn't get back. Um, but, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, but, you know, the, the presences of sleep paralysis, thoroughly malevolent, consistently malevolent. The chap that I spoke to, he walked across Italy, uh, a man called Paul Bergam, who's actually a psychology PhD student at our university. Um, he willfully tried to bring on feelings of presence yeah. um, that would help him get through kind of adverse situations. And we talk about it a couple of times where one time it really works and he, he kind of walks like a demon through the night to my, get to his destination when otherwise he might have struggled. But then he tries it another time and the presence he gets is kind of unfamiliar and unexpected and, and is actually almost as if it belongs to somebody else. So it's, there's something really ambiguous and ambivalent about a number of these experiences. It's like we're opening a door to something, but we can't always control who's going to come through the door. I want to ask you before uh, it, uh, we leave schizophrenia completely, because we interviewed Patrick House, who's a neuroscientist who has a book on consciousness. Again, very much the same thing of like, we don't know what consciousness is. Um, and so I'm going to try to get at it in sort of interesting ways. But he he had dug up research um, that there were no known cases of schizophrenia in any people who are blind since birth. Yeah, congenital blindness. That's that's ex- absolutely right. Yeah. Wild. I mean, very, and, and, and again, because we're, we're, we're talking about presence and I just, I can't help but sort of think about what, what we, I think we know in terms of uh, blind people in terms of their senses and, Mm -hmm. and that, that, you know, sort of shifting and then, but, but then it not being there. I don't know. It it just was fascinating to me. Well, I mean, we don't know why there are no known cases of schizophrenia for people who are congenitally blind. There's a few ideas thrown around um but most of them are center on this idea that look our senses don't have to develop in the way that they seem to for most of us who have who are hearing who are sighted and have been since birth um and um we tend to kind of lose track sometimes of the idea that it could be any other way now with example like congenital blindness or indeed congenital deafness obviously a brain is growing up under different constraints with a different Mm -hmm. sensory profile and um i think one thing that sometimes happens is we we end up thinking about those senses in isolation in terms of whether they're on or off and just how they might develop so how would you ever experience that if you didn't have sight or you couldn't experience sound but the truth is, for most of us who um, develop with, you know, intact senses, is that we're actually developing a multisensory system where all the senses are kind of intertwined. And depending on how they're intertwined will also determine what kinds of unusual experiences you have should you end up developing something like psychosis too. So um, in, uh, in blindness, it could literally be that it's not so much the absence of sight per se, but the lack of integration of visual systems with other sensory systems, which means you don't end up with the susceptibility to hallucinatory mm. phenomena. In mm. contrast, in deafness, you get plenty of psychosis and you even get reports of things which seem like voices. They're actually, if you look closer, they're kind of like communication hallucinations. But in deafness, you've got a lot of integration of um, the visual, uh, the motor, 
and kind of more broadly kind of sensory systems involved in communication. Whereas uh, arguably in, in blindness, you don't necessarily get that same integration because of the subtraction of the visual system. Um, so this is something people are still trying to work out, but it, I think the, you know, underlying all of it is just the sense of there's so much variety in how the mind can develop. And we're only just scratching the surface of, of kind of what's possible there. Uh, another thing that drew me to, to the book, um, because it's become a theme both in my personal life and I, ironically, the guests I have in the show, I guess, the, I guess I'm practicing me search as well with regard to who I picked to be on the podcast. But, uh, we had Annie Murphy Paul on to talk about the extended mind, which, which really led me to be thinking about my body in ways that I had not been thinking. And I did EMDR recently in therapy, which was amazing and powerfully tr- tr- uh, uh, transformative. And you have a passage in the book that I wrote down and you write, quote, the feeling of parapersonal space changes when someone else is there. It's not just about the uneasy feeling of someone being too close, but about how that closeness changes my options, possibilities, even aspirations. As a person in the world, if you're in my space, you change what I can do. By doing that, you change my possible world, end quote. And one of my flashes on that, very true in a broad sense, but also even in um, mating ritual, right? The, the, you know, if you like someone and that person is close to you in a certain, there's it like, and, and you allowing that in, it's scary. It's awesome. It's, it, but it is part of that, a major part of that, um, among other sort of, you know, events in your life. So I want to talk, I want you to talk a little bit about that too, because obviously in terms of your academic career, you're like, like thinking with the head and very brain oriented and like, did that, sh- you know, what's the chicken egg on this? Was it in the research that you became aware of that? Or had you always been aware of like, no, the body's playing a factor in this thing that is, you know, can't be ignored. Oh, um, well, you know, so I guess, um, I, I guess I'll take a chicken and, and two eggs in the sense okay. that, <laughs> um, the more recent, I'm, I'm really learning about the role of the body in the perception of the mind in through this book. I have plenty of colleagues and collaborators who are experts on bodily perception, um, and plenty of whom maybe should have written this book because it so it so heavily relies on this new science of how we understand our sense of our own bodies and the different ways in which that can be disrupted. So I talk about, for example, the presence robot, which is a technique used by Olaf Blanker in, in Geneva, literally a robot which is depends on disrupting the expectations you have about your own senses and your motor movements and if you disrupt them in just the right way you can start to get these uncanny feelings that you're not controlling things happening to your body and somebody else is hence you end up getting a a feeling of presence so there's definitely a move towards the body that uh, is happening more generally and people understanding it more uh, in psychology and neuroscience and and i'm catching up with that because I've, in the past, I've primarily worked on things like language and speech and auditory hallucinations and things like that. I'm not necessarily a body guy. But uh, where I would go back to an original egg is like my original training is actually in philosophy and psychology. It's my first degree. Mm-hmm. And I've always been interested in the ways in which different philosophical ideas can just kind of slightly shift the terms of a debate or the frame by which we try and understand a psychological phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And there's... Um, Basically, some ideas that are often attributed to um, existentialism in general, but um, in particular, people working on phenomenology like um, Merleau-Ponty, who wrote The Phenomenology of Perception, um, of this sense in which when we look out at the world, <coughs> excuse me, when we look out at the world, we don't just see this kind of very basic sensory array that we take information in from and we categorize and we work out, oh, okay, there's a guy called Kelly and here's my computer and there's a cup that I need to take downstairs. Instead, we see this kind of interconnected web of possibilities of actions of, um, of feelings to some degree. I mean, I'm sat in my loft right now and I, I really need to sort it out and it, and some of it fills me with despair. And, you know, that's not a set of inferences. It's kind of, I'm seeing, seeing that feeling around me as if the world is embedded in it with our thoughts and emotions and possibilities. Now in Merleau-Ponty's philosophy, often that would be understood in, via the concept of lived space. It's different from objective space. 
It's the space in which we live, the space in which we could move. In psychology, that's usually associated with um, uh, a guy called Gibson who worked on ecological perception. And he said that the world is full of these affordances, things that we can do with the world. And they're kind of, they're like cues to action um, all around us. So I always had those ideas in the back of my mind or I was working on psychosis a bit. But when it comes to something like presence, it's absolutely true because like presences don't exist in objective space. They exist in your lived space. So yeah. when they're there, they're changing that map. They're changing those possibilities. You cannot move that way or that way. If a disembodied voice is just hanging out next to your shoulder and you're scared of it, then that potential space is going to feel so, so small. Um, so that's, that's kind of the point of that passage really is thinking about how the spaces in which we move and our bodies exist are constantly waxing and waning and you know what a nice example of that is um there's evidence to show that during COVID 19 with all the pandemics and the lockdowns people's peripersonal space changed yeah okay you can actually you can measure it via different tools of how essentially how people's perceptions work in a very confined space versus a larger space and and lockdown changed peripersonal space because peripersonal space is defined by others and the kind of social possibilities of the world much more so than just objective space I well, thousand percent. I mean, and and again, this is not a scientific um, uh, uh, thing at all. But observationally, what I've noticed is here, okay, so we have a school, right? And so we have a lot of people uh, in, in the professional theater and all that stuff. The um, people have a real hard time walking through the world, and I mean that specifically right now. Mm. It, it is it is it is like we're all out of practice in terms of the the weave and 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 living in a big city and and going downtown. I'm like, oh wow, this used to just it feels it feels different. It has felt different. Mm. I've also recognized that as we've gotten back into the spaces together, um, that um, it, it's it the the it's getting better. It's great, and people are are starting to like you see them open up in front of you in ways that is, is sort of like, Oh, wow. That like, you're having a really transformative moment quickly. Um, and, and I just feel like there, there was potentially because it was all, it was sort of locked up for, for almost literally for, you know, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Very much. So I, I, I feel like I've seen the same thing over here. Um, there in talking, you're talking about the robot and this comes up in, uh, your chapter on Luke, uh, uh, Robertson, who's a friend who, you know, goes through, you know, tr- tremendous events. You can, you can talk a bit about that. Um, y- you talk, and I think, I, I don't know if he said it or, or you're characterizing what he said. And it's quote, some presences lead and some are led. Um, which I thought was very interesting because w- there's a very key improvisational principle that when we bring, when we bring into corporate work, it's, it's in our leadership model, but it's a concept called follow the follower where we basically teach people, um, that in improvisation, you know, uh, leadership is fluid. Uh, and, and so you, you want your expert sort of going and then that trades off expertise. Um, this of course was, there's leadership experts going back millennia who've talked, talked about this. It hasn't translated much into actually doing anything in corporate, <laughs> corporate America <laughs> about it, but, 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 but is very true and very useful in terms of, uh, that sort of, uh, group uh, activity. So uh, maybe talking a bit about Luke and, and where that idea sort of came in, in, into play. Of course. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Luke, like you say, is a, um, essentially is a guy who married a friend of mine from university. Um, and he's possibly one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met um, <laughs> because he, so he was the uh, youngest Scot to ski solo to the South Pole, which he did in 2015. But he did that on the back of Uh, having a pacemaker fitted in his early 20s because it turned out he had a kind of congenital heart problem Um, and then also um, recovering for what turned out to be a a benign growth in his brain Uh, it was an enterogenous cyst um, that he fully thought was was a tumor and actually uh, had to be fully removed and then he he really had a lucky escape essentially in in that turning out to be something that could be fully removed and not not problematic but um that disrupted his training because he'd already decided to go to the South Pole. Uh, sorry, I'm losing my voice slightly. I've had a cold recently, mm-hmm. and um, he, uh, but he, but he was absolutely committed. This is something he'd been thinking about kind of all his life. That he wanted to go and do, and he was he was actually doing it for charity to raise awareness for uh, people who'd had pacemakers fitted and everything like that. And um, and really, Luke's story is is there to um, sit in balance with um, 
Shackleton story that I talk about earlier in the book, because going back to the idea of, you know, the legend looming large, Shackleton's story is often interpreted in terms of, well, he himself called it providence, that somehow, you know, something was watching over them that helped these men get over the line and save them in the right moment. And so many of those stories are all about the companion that, that saves or leads. And uh, without wanting to kind of um, doubt those stories and the meaning and significance of those stories, I just kept, couldn't help but feeling that surely, you know, sometimes things are a bit more complex than that. And Luke was a really nice example because when he went to the South Pole, he had a whole bunch of hallucinatory experiences. He had the whole gamut. And some of them are the kind of things exactly we'd expect in mm-hmm. a very um, bare sensory environment. So essentially lots and lots of snow, complete whiteout. You're very likely to start having unusual experiences. So the first thing that Luke sees when he's doing this solo journey, took 40 days, was the green grass of home. He starts to see these hills in Scotland near to his farm uh, that he lived in, uh, where he grew up in, in, in northeast Scotland. Later on, he starts to see Flintstone characters on the horizon as well. But he kind of knows this is the mind playing tricks on him. Later again, though, something starts to call his name. Something starts to shout, Luke, from behind him, back over his shoulder. And he knows, he absolutely knows that there can't be anybody there, there, let alone anybody who knows his name. There couldn't possibly be somebody there just behind him. So he's telling himself, just ignore it. Don't look behind, don't look behind. But at the same time, he did look behind every time, and he felt like he had to. Because he thought that this thing that was following him, and he would describe it as a presence, if it caught, if he didn't look behind him, it would catch up with him, tap him on his shoulder, and it would stop his heart. Mm. And this, this, whatever this entity is, follows him all the way to the South Pole. But it's not the only presence that visits him. He also has one of these more classical presences, this uh, essentially a, another one that's a bit more like a voice. But in two instances, it's the one that kind of wakes him up and gets him going at moments where had he fallen asleep or had he given up, he would have been in serious trouble. It would have been a real threat to his life. So that kind of like, um, you know, just in the nick of time savior thing does happen to him. But it's different from this thing that's somehow behind him. And when he talks about those two, he said, well, one of them was leading me. It was kind of saving me. And it felt like it was my turn to be led. But the other one I was kind of responsible for, I was leading. Mm. Um, as if he had this obligation to this spectre, for want of a better word. <laughs> we, and, and really, that, the significance of that is it just shows that these experiences are deeply kind of ambiguous a lot of the time. That's what I mean about, you know, you don't, you don't get to choose what's going to, you know, what happens once your mind goes into that space. And what it expresses, though, is the complexity of the relationships we have with other people. They're barely ever, you know, just in one direction. They're barely ever, you know, as simple as that person's leading, that person's saving me. You might have mixed feelings about people doing that sort of thing. You might feel embarrassed that you need to be led. And so for the presence that is behind Luke, he essentially talks about it as if this thing was his responsibility. It was his burden that he needed to get home just as well as he needs to get himself home too um and and what that does is it kind of opens out a whole range of possibilities for how we understand presence really as a kind of quite complex social phenomenon okay this leads me perfectly to the big i i bolded this section in terms of what i wanted to talk to you about and it's like five pages into my notes we're gonna do it now (laughs) everyone has a strange relationship authors have a strange relationship with with their books so I'm, i'm curious about yours um, so what you're getting at, it, I think mo- most of the books I read, and, and many of them are, are social scientists or various scientists, um, the last couple chapters, you know, okay, I'm, I'm through it. Uh, Into Minds, which is one, one of your last, I think I underlined the entire chapter. Right. I, I don't know, like, to me, the poetry of the book was coming through so incredibly there, um, I, I'll just start with one of the quotes that I, I bolded. "Quote: Many of us will have strong. Uh, many of us will have a strong sense of ourselves and our own thoughts. We are in charge. We are the solid line throughout our experience, and no one else is. To think otherwise would be madness. People with split or multiple personalities are often seen as unstable. Something to be feared. To be multiple in some way is to have lost control. To be lacking somehow." Uh, and then really quick afterwards, uh, we like to think we have psychological continuity across time and space, but we don't. Not all the time. We connect the dots and forget the gaps. This, this to me, is strikes at the heart of the book, which is this 
misconception uh, that somehow it's all us. Um, and, and, and that is true across like more than one domain, more than three domain, more than 10 domain. I mean, it, it's, uh, um, I have a podcast coming up with, um, she was an economist at Northwestern and she got into indigenous healing and family trauma. And she's talking about unresolved, uh, things that your grandparents did that you might, that you might mm-hmm. be dealing with. And, and as I'm reading this book, which normally would be sort of like, I don't care, I, that like, I was very moved by what she sort of went through to sort of make this discovery. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you wrestle with in this book as a scientist. Like, yes, you want to be able to point to, to evidence and, but, and there, but there's just also things happening that are very hard to measure. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Um, and, and you're right, I guess as, as the book goes on, there probably are a few more things in there that are very hard to fit within a, an empirical or a, a kind of more traditionally positivist idea um, mm-hmm. or do, paradigm, rather. Um, I think for me, this goes back to that notion of the ensemble that you were talking about before yeah. and and the importance of the bonds that we have with others and, and how they somehow add up to something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Um, I, that I think it's, I put it in this way in the book as well, the self is an ensemble piece. If yeah. we, we can look at so many different levels of how the self is experienced, where it's about combining multiple elements together. And when some of those elements break apart, that's when you get these very strange non-self experiences. So the first half of the book is largely around how we can understand our senses of our own bodies and our integration of multiple sensory cues at the same time to get a sense of where our bodies are in space. If we disrupt that, then you start to get very unusual experiences, essentially boiling down to this doesn't feel like me. It must be somebody else. But actually there are other layers of self too. It's not just about bodily self. So people are probably aware of a kind of a sense of a narrative self, the self that uh, is the stories that we tell about ourselves, which connects up, you know, uh, our childhood experiences with being a teenager, with being an adult. And, and more often than not, we try to provide continuity in that narrative to even turn it into a narrative as opposed to a set of excerpts or something. Um, but there are other elements of the self too, which are about combining our relationships and uh, using uh, our kind of, feelings and relations to others as a way of defining ourselves. So imagine, you know, within a family, you know, if you're a sibling, you know, your older, your older uh, brother, well, they're the musical one and your, your younger sister, well, she's the funny one. And what are you? Well, you're the risk taking one, you know, like that it's everything. Everybody gets their own self defined in a way in relation and in contrast to the people around them. And it doesn't have to be, you know, contrast. It could just be feelings. It could be, you know, mm-hmm. the, the bonds that we hold with each other that tell you something more about, well, who you are, you know, in that particular system too. So what the book is trying to get at is, you know, whichever like layer of the self or the conception of the self we look at, there are ways in which that can break down. And there are ways in that tease that, that in which that can tease apart. And the sense of coherence we have, we shouldn't necessarily doubt it or call it an illusion, but we should see it for what it is, which is this kind of, constructed thing you know depends on multiple moving parts and that's okay <laughs> i think it's it's that's, it, that's no. that feels natural i th- i think oh it's it a almost... much it's, it's a much more it's a much more um uh it's not even just practical it's a more honest approach of the thing that's yeah. going on which is complex this is yeah. very are you familiar with goffman's work Irvin goffman who does the oh yeah 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 so i, I yeah, think yeah. about the off stage the backstage the on stage yeah and, and I love the performance metaphor, not just because I, I work in a performance, I've worked in the theater forever, but also I think it's, a, it's, it's, um, I don't know. I think, I think about ensemble and I think of that, like, like plays have casts. And I, I've, I've talked to people in startups and they're like, and if they've worked in theater, like, oh, the best training I had for a startup was actually putting on a show. Mm-hmm, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, of course you had to get a group of people together with this idea of a thing that doesn't exist that you're going to do at the end and it's going to be great. But then there's also like selling tickets and it's like, it's very complex, all these moving parts. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't understand that our actual lives are that your yeah. startups. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, we, we, we set the bar too high if we're supposed to be, you know, consistent through time. <laughs> 
<laughs> and yeah, and we luck. don't make you know we don't contradict ourselves and we don't change our appetites oh, yeah, yeah. and but uh, you know for the, the interesting thing for me is like how often we might still think that we are consistent you know and we are oh, yeah. you know that we've that we are that through line whereas you know i've had instances where family members have i i came out of well it, it wasn't the last jurassic park film it was the it was the first of the new ones whatever uh, that whatever that one was mm. um with like chris pratt and people like that and i was like you yeah. know what i really enjoyed that i didn't expect to enjoy it i enjoyed it and my brother turned around to me and went well big surprise the boy was obsessed with jurassic park loves the new Jurassic Park film. <laughs> and I'd kind of forgotten that about myself, that at the time mm-hmm. I was absolutely obsessed. I was eight when the first Jurassic Park film came wow. out. Wow, okay. And it was, you know, it was it, it was an intense love at the time, if mm-hmm. a bit scary for an eight-year-old. But that, that thing that was true of me, of myself, I had forgotten and I was relying on uh, my brother to actually remind me that this is, that was part of who I am. And it, and it just got me thinking, it was like, well, how many things are like that? You know, that it's that like the, the fallibility of, of kind of memory and the dominance of your current conception of who you are, your own sense of identity and conception of self to the point that there's tons of stuff that we don't know or have forgotten about ourselves. There's, there's a great scene, second city scene where a uh, dad is talking to his son. He's like, well, I keep that in your mom's brain. And he's like, what do you, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, like where my car's keys are. Uh, which which cousin drinks too much mm-hmm. like this is this long laundry list and it always got this terrific laugh and you're like oh yeah because that's actually very true for you and not something that is expressed very often in the audience yeah. like ev- everyone understands that yeah 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 one of the best examples of the extended mind uh, yeah you know there was most people associate the extended mind at least in scholarly circles with um clark and charms's article in 1998 and famously that used to you know drew upon examples like um having a map versus having to remember going in a particular direction or more latterly the idea that you know your iphone becomes your brain but before that there were you know marriages and spouses and uh, plenty of cognitive laziness mm-hmm. um and, and that's where that's where you get all this like offloading of of different like functions of the mind to some degree um all right we're we're almost wrapping up uh at the end of the book you talk about um you and becoming a new parent uh but in covid yeah sorry that had to suck it did Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it was hard it was a stressful time um Mm -hmm. uh but um but eventually i wrote a book in that time so you know yeah pros and cons and uh, no it was hard and and look it was um obviously it was hard for people around the world in different ways and um in you know for some people in completely unimaginable ways and and what we what we had to manage was only um a very small part of that obviously but it um it, those sorts of situations do make you very aware of the bonds and the dependencies that you have on other people whether that's a family or a community or in our instance uh we have a national health service i don't know if you heard it's great um i've heard, um, heard yeah it's um, sad here well actually it's getting worse because it needs to be funded better anyway well, um okay. but uh, but you know that that as i think lots of people would have experienced in with covid and with with the um with the lockdowns in particular that it it, it makes you think so differently about um the social world and and the and the the spaces in which you usually live your life and how radically those can be transformed um and how they're embedded those things are as well like going back to the idea of lived space being defined by you know the the others around us that you can't it's hard to think of a more radical transformation um so yeah uh it's funny i um my friend Eric is a, uh, a writer and he's a, he, he, one of his jobs is he edits the AARP magazine. This is the Association of Retired Persons magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was thinking about, um, uh, relationships with your adult uh, kids. So I have a 25 year old and, um, uh, he, he had been following cause I, I was posting the stuff on Facebook when COVID happened. I just had this idea, um, because I have a particular love of a Chicago thing. You might not even know about it. Italian beef sandwiches. This is a very Chicago thing. I, I haven't had that. I've had, uh, obviously I've had the pizza. I haven't had that sandwich. That okay. sounds great. So there, there's a series called the bear. 
um, uh, that just came out, which is a, li- a little bit about about that. But it's a very and actually the quick backstory: Italian immigrants coming here, very poor, needed uh, to feed for weddings, a lot of stuff. So they made this very thin beef that they would put in juices for like hours and hours and hours, and it's it fed a lot of people and it was tasty and and then became became and it's very unique here. It hasn't gone to other you know I've, there might be some joints in LA that are based because they're Chicago people. So Nick and I would and, and the best ones are probably forty minutes. 50 minutes outside of Chicago. Mm -hmm. So um, we would sit in the car for 40 minutes one way, 40 minutes back, have these great conversations in part because we're facing forward and not having to look at each other. We would go to these interesting places where like no one's wearing masks where we were going. Like we're all masked up. We're being really careful there. And they're all characters. And there was always some sort of interesting thing. And, And it made me, when I was writing this article about it, I was like, Oh, actually, kind of listen, this was brilliant in the sense of being in a space with my adult son, which I don't get because he's an adult. And mm-hmm. so, so I crafted this and we were able to have really cool conversations and sort of explore at a time when there was no exploration. I'm not climbing, climbing a mountain. I'm going to Cicero for yeah, yeah. Chicago. But it, it, it made me think of things like what you talked about in the book, which is there, there was a physical thing at work. There was a... There, the, there's also the bigger things of like we we belong to a bigger tradition and whether it's his late grandpa or whoever or a future kid that could come along that's going to be my grandson all, all of that meets in this moment yeah perhaps. yeah yeah i don't know Very powerfully yeah yeah and you're kind of carving out that new space aren't you there's something i remember well, all those forays like once you could do something outside of a lockdown and it might be to meet one person it might be to go to one yeah bar or cafe. backyard or something exactly yeah. and it's you, like you're both doing a, a a kind of risky thing like like sneaking out of your parents house or something to meet a friend or whatever like that but it's all of Which that. If you, okay so remember that remember that sense memory i mean that is a very sort of looking over your shoulder and like, yeah, yeah. like there's, a, there's a fear and there's also an excitement to that and yeah. yeah, how do you manufacture that as a, as a, a an adult? And I think that's the thing. That's that what we miss in terms of less play in our lives. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's just across the board. It's like we had, like we're mi- we're missing it. And and I think it's a lot of reasons adults come here to take improv class because they're just dying to have some sort of interaction with something that's unexpected. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there probably are adults that are still sneaking out of their own houses, but whether they should is another question. So. <laughs> Yeah, God love them. All right. We always end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yeah. Um, well, a yes and that starts with a no. Um, I love it. Which was, I, um, <clears throat> so I, I, the first time I wrote something about presence was back in uh, 2016. I wrote something for um, uh, this magazine called The Psychologist, which is published by the British Psychological Society over here in the UK. And on the back of that, um, an agent called Kirsty McLaughlin got in touch with me and went, do you see a, a book in this? I really feel like there's there's something here. There's a topic. And at the time, I was like, no, nah, I mean, you know, I kind of, I'm busy with all this work. I haven't even kind of published enough in this area. It's hard to know. Is this even a thing that you can measure? And um, fast forward to August 2020. Um, in fact, no, July. And I'm mm-hmm. standing in a garden uh, in Edinburgh, in Scotland, looking out at some of the hills. I mean, there are, there are seven hills in Edinburgh. Sometimes people, it's why you get comparisons with Athens, famously sure. has seven, seven hills. And uh, Luke Robertson, Luke, who went to the South Pole, it's his garden. And he goes, oh, are you still working on hallucinations and things? And I go, yeah, sure. He said, yeah, like Shackleton. I, I had those. And I was like, did you? <laughs> <laughs> and so from that... Um, I, I got back in touch with Kirsty. I emailed her and I said, yes, and and I know how to write the book now. And wow. actually, in, in between that time, to be fair, up, leading up to that conversation with Luke, I'd worked on um, presences in the context of bereavement. I'd run surveys on presences experienced by spiritualists and psychics, people who'd done kind of endurance sports, solo pursuits. And I'd met people like Alex and worked more on the psychosis studies and what I was confident about then is, you know, this is a story that you don't just tell from one direction. When you, when you've barely got the words to describe such a very basic feeling, what you need is to understand it from as many different directions as possible, create this kind of circle of meaning through these different stories and different contexts. 
That's right. Um, and and that's what I land on at the end of the book is essentially this this circle of presences, to, so that mm. we've tried to understand something in the round. When if we tried to land on a very specific definition and a very specific idea of exactly what it was from the start, we would never have got there. It makes me think of the blind man and in, in, in the elephant. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the book is called Presence, The Strange Science and True Stories of the Unseen Other. Ben Alderson Day, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Ken. Getting the SN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumbledare, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Faye. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive